Reliance Fellowship. We are going to be reading from the first 20 verses of chapter 29 in Genesis. So if you could find Genesis 29 in your Bibles and stand with me in honor of reading God's word, we will go ahead and do that. Genesis 29, 1-20. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot, until all the flocks are gathered, and they rolled the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Thanks, Sheila. You may be seated. It's one of those stories that when you get to verse 20, you're tempted to say, aw, he worked, he waited seven years, and it only appeared as a few days because of his love for her. Indeed, this is a, a love story. And to be fair, you know that I... Or we had only read half the story. For it will turn out to be 
a nightmare. Um, it's interesting to me, like, when you come to texts like this, it's tempting to stop Midway's story because of the opportunities that might be presented. This is how you find your spouse. Just follow and find a well, or not well, but a well, and the first lady that appears, that's the one. That would be so helpful. The reality is, is that this love story is going to go dreadfully in the wrong direction. Now, yet, if we were to stop at verse 20, it has the markings, as we were laughing before the story or the service, to be a hallmark story. In fact, if we were to put the description down, I could imagine what they would write. Restless, rebellious young man meets beautiful shepherdess and is willing to abandon all of his old ways by surrendering seven years of wages for her. If you've seen one Hallmark show, you know. The only makings to make this even better is if these situations occurred during Christmas. As some of you know, this story doesn't end in verse 20. And they don't have the happily ever after. And if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you are waiting for Jacob to have a win. He has had, let's be, let's be fair, a rough go at it. His parents have practiced parental favoritism. He has wrestled his brother even from the womb till his mid, or up to his age of 40. He has deceived and stolen the blessing and the birthright of his family, and he has disintegrated the peace which existed within his house. The very reason why he finds himself out in the middle of nowhere in front of a well in Haran is because his parents sent him away. The guy needs a win. His restless and rebellious ways have disintegrated the entire peace of his family. And his father says... I think it's best you go. His mother, in fear for his own life, agrees. And they send him off with two primary reasons. One, to preserve his life. After deception and stealing from Esau, Esau wants to kill him. It's time to go. You need to flee. The second reason is that Rebecca and Isaac, Jacob, you're 40. It's time to find a wife. Your wife will be found, hopefully, in the household of Laban, which happens to be, as we have read, Rebecca's brother. Last week, it almost seems like Jacob gets a win. So he finds himself out in the middle of nowhere, comes to a certain place, lost everything, has only about a rock to use for his pillow. The Lord shows up, and before this rebellious and restless man, gives Jacob the most uh, surprisingly individual to receive a blessing from God, but God graciously gives him this gift of grace by promising him this in Genesis 28, 14 through 15. Your descendants will also be like the dusts of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and out to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you. Like Jacob needed a win. Like this is the, like feels like the beginnings of the, the tides of his life turning, right? 
Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This divine, gracious event, which we just saw last week, feels like maybe things are tipping Jacob's way finally. (laughs) He's turning the corner. This is a love story. But it's not one that anyone wants to be a part of. And surprisingly, the writer includes it for us to recognize once again the impact of sin within the world and even one's family. The question when I come to a text like this is why is it here? What's the point? Right? We don't stop the story at verse 20 as wonderful as it ends. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. We recognize that's not the end. And so as we read the story, we ask the question, why is it here? There is a love story here, but what is it about? As we come asking the text questions, it comes to the point, as you walk with me, I think as we prepare for the table, it becomes quite convicting what it is calling us to. The story is really laid out in only two parts. Jacob's arrival, and then once again, the sin of deception. And as a result of looking at those two parts, I want to then prepare our hearts for the table, looking at our own convictional response. And so with that, let's look at his arrival. Verse 2. He's wandering for a period of time just as he received the promise that God will be with him. And he looked, verse 2, and he saw a well, and a well, well I keep think, saying well, and I think of a well in the water. This is awful. A well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there besides it. For from that well, they watered the flocks. Now the stone of the mouth of the well was rather large. If you, if you read Genesis, you already know the scene starting to tip in Jacob's favor. You know, because Isaac, Jacob's father, when he was 40 years old, Abraham said, you need a wife. And so he set aside his servant, and his servant went to the house of Laban to find a bride for his son, Isaac, or excuse me, Jacob. No, excuse me, Isaac. <laughs> the name's messed up. And as Isaac's servant, Abraham's servant, goes, he appears to a well, and he doesn't know how he's going to find this wife for Abraham's son. And so he prays at this well in Genesis 24, 13. Behold, Lord, I'm standing by the spring, and the daughters of men in the city are going to come out to draw water. Now, may it be that the girl to whom I saw or say, please let down your jar so that I may drink. And whose answer, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. And he's at this well. He says, I just need a sign. And so the first woman that says, yes, you can have a drink. And she waters all of my candles. She's the one. And who does this? The mother of Jacob, Rebekah. Some 60 years later, where is Jacob? 
at a well. And he's looking for a wife. The way the Genesis is written is like it's interwoven. It's almost like you have to know what's coming before it so you can appreciate what's happening within the stories as they develop. Jacob is looking for a wife, and yes, he finds a well. We can anticipate the wife, future wife, on the way. And so when he says in verse 5, he said to the men who were around the well, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, Yeah, we know him. Might that have been hopeful for Jacob because his journey from Bethsaida to Haran was what? 500 miles, one quite big journey. I've made it. Verse 6, and he said to them, well, is he doing well? And they said to him, it is well, and here is Rachel. Not only has he found his uncle, but the woman of his dreams becomes rolling up the stream, like rolling up to the well. Look at, behold, here she comes. Verse 7, behold, uh, here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. When he sees her, like, like not only is she capable, but she can tend sheep. Like she is like, like one out of a dozen, right? Well, well, I don't know. I didn't live then, so I don't, I don't know what made him popular. But this is going to capture his love. Like, and what he does in response is the man, he's like, why, Jacob asks the man, why are you not feeding the sheep? They're like, There's, well, we've got to wait for everybody's here, and then we can move this big stone that's on the well. Jacob's like, I, I can do it myself. When he sees Rachel show up, look at how he responds. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, and she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, it says this three times to emphasize, like the tide's turning for Jacob. It seems like all is in his favor. And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up, rolled the stone from the mouth of the well, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. He's like, men, step aside. I got the stone. This is the woman. She must have been impressed because in verse 11, she lets him kiss him or kiss her. Like, with excitement, Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and, and wept. She tells him, that he is the relative of her father and that he was Rebecca's son. And she ran. Like, it's perfect story. Verse 13, Laban hears. Now remember, when Abraham sent his servant to find the bride for his son, he sent the son or the servant with tons of money. Right? When Re- Rebecca feeds all the camels or drink gives all the camels water at the after the conclusion there was a gift of some like seven thousand dollars given to Rebecca. Laban hears oh son of Rebecca is here he's running he's running out to find and Jacob has literally nothing. In fact when he gets into the house he lives there for a month as kind of like the guy that just stays there and hires him to work for him. The situation has flipped. But when Laban hears the news of Jacob, his sister, he ran to meet him, embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him into the house. Then he related Jacob to Laban all these things. 
Verse 14, Laban accepts him. What a, what a beautiful scene. Like, if you're going to start dating someone, it's really nice. I know this. The father-in-law will like you. And the mother-in-law likes you. It is very helpful as things progress. And Jacob has not only found the woman of his dreams, but he also has struck it well with Laban. And Laban says, come and be my employee. Like, it's perfect. This story's perfect. Because you are my relative, you should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And Jacob has one thing on his mind. Rachel. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of, this is verse 16, the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, like her appearance was weak in the face. If you were to compare the two sisters together, Rebecca was beautiful in form and face. Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, Granted, if we lived 4,000 years ago, we would notice the significance of Jacob's offer. It was typical that a man who wanted a man's daughter to offer her or him about a year's wage. She's worth seven times this. She's worth the wait. Jacob is in love. Laban, wanting to strike a good deal, said, it's better that I give her to you, seven years is fair, than to give her to another man. Stay with me. Come on in, son. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her credits in scene. We We know that's not where the story ends. The author is doing something with what he's writing, And it seems like the gap between 20 and 21 is instant for when the deception takes place. We fast forward within an instant seven years between verses 20 and 21. Point two, the deception. Then Jacob said after the seven years, give me my wife. It's not a please. I've waited seven years. I've done my task. It's time to enjoy my bride. Give me my wife, for my time is complete that I may go into her. Laban, upon hearing the fulfillment of Jacob's service, gathers all the men in verse 22. Let's party. Right? We celebrate weddings now today over a day. They do it over a week. And at the beginning of the week, Marriage is solidified and enjoyed the rest of the week. Verse 22, they gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. And as the feast took place and the evening came, look what happens in verse 23. I know you're familiar with it. The question is that I have, what is the author doing? What is he showing us? What is here to convict us? Now in the evening, he took his daughter Leah And he brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid, Zilpha, to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about 
in the morning that, behold, shocking. This is, I was just contemplating this scenario. This would have been horrifying. Um, horrifying. I remember when I was four years old, I think that was how old I was, but I was walking in the grocery store, and you get lost from your parents, maybe, just by turning a corner, and you, you thought they went this way, and you didn't that way, and, but they look, you're walking next to an adult that looks like your parent, and you reach up, and you grab their hand, only to realize they're not your parents, and that is, for a four-year-old, have you ever done this? Okay, no? Oh, it's horrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying for a four-year-old. This is another ball game. This is a totally different ball game. Waking up in the morning and not expecting, like, the woman that you had been working for seven years, behold, I don't know if the word is sufficient for the occurrence. Behold, it was Leah. And he said, I know, he made it out of that tent as quick as he could. And he said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? Ironic, isn't it? This is the fourth occurrence, actually, that we read the phrase, what is this that you have done? This is one of the, the, the joys if we become stewards of God's Word. We read it regularly. We pick up on what the author is doing in the stories that he's, comparing, uh, he's telling to the readers so as to convict us to our right response. The first occurrence where an individual has said, what is this that, ha- that you have done is found at the very beginning in Genesis 3.13. See, when Adam and Eve eaten of the fruit, it was the Lord who turned to the woman and said, what is this that you have done? Granted, it was no hallmark, but it was a perfect world. As a result of her failure to obey the standard of God, the consequences of that sin have disintegrated society's sense. Second of occurrence is when Abraham told Pharaoh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And when Pharaoh hears that, in fact, Sarah is Abraham's wife, Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this that you have done to me? Isaac, who has followed along just like his father Abraham, is the third occurrence. When he, his fear of being killed, told Abimelech, Rebecca's not my wife, she's my sister. When Abimelech hears this, he says, what is this that you have done to us? When Jacob, now the fourth occurrence, when he says to Laban, running out of the tent, what is this that you have done? What is so ironic about the situation? What makes the situation so ironic is that the deceiver has now been deceived and is unable to recognize that his own deception was hurtful. And he is so quick to be able to recognize that when others deceive him, it hurts. And is quickly able to pinpoint the wrong in another. 
Up to this point, granted, we have not seen, even at the grace of God, when God says, I'll be with you, showed any regret for the actions of which Jacob has taken with his family. I think it's ironic, and it reminds me of the story that even uh, occurred with David. David and his kingdom, when he became king, he realized he was king, and then one day he looks down, he sees a woman, he takes her to, be her, to, be her, to delay with her. Once she becomes pregnant, he sends off to have her husband Uriah the Hittite killed. At the end of the scenario, his commander is all worried. He's worried about what David has done, and David says, don't let it be evil in your sight. Right? There is this issue which is going to develop in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament for individuals who can have PhD degrees in seeing the wrongs of another, yet not themselves. Jacob is able to to depict it. It's easy, really. I mean, she's not Rachel. It's Leah. I worked seven years for Leah, or excuse me, Rachel. What have you done? He's quick to point the finger. Remember the creative response in which, which Nathan the prophet brought before David to bring him to repentance what God did? God sent Nathan to him. Let me remind you of it. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 6. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Rise, or David's like, I've done anything wrong. Let this not be evil. And he came to him and said, King, there's, there's two men in one city and one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and a herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished, and then grew up together with him and his children. He would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was willing to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe and lamb and appeared it and prepared it for the man who had come to him. When David hears this, right, David has the ability, just like you and I do, to recognize the wrong in another, but not himself. David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Isn't this, this is an interesting he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan's response is, you're the man. The story of David and of Jacob is so ironic because you remember, yes, it is in the covering of dark that Leah and Laban deceived Jacob. But what did Jacob do? It was the cover of his father Isaac's blindness that Jacob put on Esau's clothes and dressed up his arms with animal skins. And through the deception or assistance of his mother, Rebekah, deceived their, their father and husband for the blessing and did it willingly. Yet when it happens to him, what is this that you have done? It's just ironic. 
Laban indeed has been deceitful, but he's prepared. He knows Jacob's story, and his response is pointed. Look at how he responds. Verse 26, Laban said, It is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Creative. What Laban is saying, he has clothed his deception with a sharp critique of Jacob. What he has done is that you seek to displace the firstborn, Leah, by her little sister. I don't know where you're from, Jacob, but we do not do that here, nor will we do that in our family, even if you've done it in yours. Jacob has met his match. And the deceiver has been deceived and confronted with his own past. And Jacob is oblivious to his own actions. And so Laban, knowing that he has Jacob in his hand, imagine, look at verse 27, the request here. Just complete the week of this one. And we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. That would not be a fun wedding week. I have been to a wedding where the, the bride got angry. It became very awkward. This would have been very awkward for a whole week to just parade along that this is going to go well. And then to be asked again to come the next week to celebrate yet another wedding. Like, what could go wrong? And we will see this next week, how awfully wrong it goes. Jacob did so, verse 28, and he completed her week. Why? He loved her. He loved Rachel. And he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. And Laban also gave his maid, Bila, to his daughter, Rachel, as her maid. Jacob went in to Rachel also, and indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. Jacob was able to deceive Esau with lentil soup for the birthright. Laban's playing a different ballgame. Jacob will work for Laban for 20 years. Jacob attempted to run from the impact of deception with it. He disintegrated his own family, only to be found married in the hearts of deception. He grew up in a family that practiced parental favoritism and now is engaged in two marriages where he will now practice Marital favoritism. Like, he has not been able to outrun his problems. It's only made him worse. It's funny. Throughout this whole story, you may have missed it, but where's God? He's not there. We'll get to it next week. The whole scenario unfolds, and it's 
These two men reaching for what they want, and clearly the hearts of deception seeding their fruit. What is the author trying, I think, to convict us with? Let's think about that as we prepare for the table, our convictional response. Up to this point, if we walked through Genesis over the last several months, we have seen the impact of deception, not over the whole world, but families. Remember, as I stated earlier, when Eve responds to the deception, and she loves for herself this idea of having wisdom, it creates death for all societies since her. Abraham loved his own life, so he picked up the sin of deception. Isaac, same issue, love for one's life. Laban, wanting to deceive his own nephew so that he could hand off this responsibility of finding husbands for his daughters. Acts in deception. Jacob disintegrates his family over and over again and will disintegrate this family through ongoing deceptions. I said this is a love story. It's a love story of oneself, which pursues life to meet one's own passions and desires. And so Jacob deceives to get that which his brother has, his birthright and his blessing. Laban deceives to fulfill his father's responsibility, taking advantage of a nephew who has nothing and enslaves him for 20 years so that he can be established at the cost of the one who serves him. This theme of which carries on in what is so striking with Jacob, which we ought to just really, really grapple with, is that when Jacob experiences deception himself, he knows it's wrong. And he can pinpoint it in another. How the story becomes ironic, like, you're the man, Jacob. It's, the story is thick because this issue will carry on throughout the rest of the Scriptures. And I have found it true in my own life that we are very, very good at seeing the wrongs in others. In fact, it's one of the reasons why we don't ask one another, how do you think I'm doing? How could I improve? Like, who signs up for a job evaluation? Or marital evaluation? To place yourself humbly before other eyes. In fact, we might just be honest enough, we might just realize that the reasons why we don't do that is that we know they can see what we cannot see. It's like we come into the world with this PhD, this gift to do so, but we're less than amateurs of being able to recognize our own faults and sins. And so we end up doing what every society like Jacob has done, 
is trivialize our sin, moving along the way, thinking that time somehow will cover them up. Ultimately, eventually being exposed for the things that we've tried to trivialize. Um, I'm amazed. Like with the faults of humanity, how often it comes with, with marriage, even as we'll go on to see with sexual immorality. A spouse becomes angry because one spouse trivializes their addiction. And so they can see the, the wrong and they accuse rightfully and they hold account, but then minimize their own or trivialize their own entertainment of it as they watch it on the TV screen. Because it's okay for them and not okay for the other. I mean, I don't, I'm amazed at what makes it on the streaming services now. There used to be a day, like when, when you go to the store, you'd, you'd pick up the, bag, the, the, the book and it'd have like a, the, the sleeve over it that cover it because you knew it was inappropriate. Right? Not anymore. It's just right there. We trivialize these things, but yet we recognize every single week that goes by, yet another celebrity fails. Every points the finger. Ha ha! Got these wonderful PhDs. But acknowledging and recognizing the sins of one another, but we are so trivial to recognize it in ourselves. What is this that you have done? Versus, what have I done? Right, we're standing in front of a table. Right, this is what makes Christianity so hopeful. It is a highly reflective faith, which begins with the acknowledgement, I know what I have done. I am the deceiver. I have purposefully and willfully wronged God. Like, we don't come to the table before recognizing our sin. Like, Jesus even taught this way before you look at your brother and take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the, the plank out of your own. We're a highly reflective people. We're not proud. We ought not be an arrogant Romans 2, 3, we got done with this about a year ago. Paul even encourages the church there to remember, do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? We know what hypocrisy is. And it's so easy to see it in Jacob and then yet fail to recognize it in ourselves. So it's a strange thing, I think, the conditioned humanity where we can see each other's wrong but not our own. We're blind to them. And so when we come to the table, we recognize we are sinners. And wonderfully grateful that by the grace of God, He has still yet granted us salvation in Jesus Christ, which we have responded in by faith. And we love that character of God, which makes us rejoice when we take the table together. So what marks the church throughout all history 
for being such a unique type of people is that we all recognize we have this heart condition. And so we've come around the table carefully and reflectively because we all know we can look toward each other and find ourselves wrong with what's wrong with each other, but we also come to the table recognizing first a reflection of ourselves. It starts here. And yet, recognizing that God has been gracious to us, now we are gracious towards one another. Strikingly, this, this example is probably put, put placed most obviously even in the life of Jesus' ministry. I'd like to remind you of it. It's a striking story in John chapter 8. The Pharisees and the religious leaders who had the ability to know what right and wrong is. This one's obvious. She's a prostitute caught in it. They bring her to Jesus. Now in the law, like as if they have to teach Jesus what the law says. Now in the law, Moses, command us to stone such women. But what do you say? And they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. I I read this story, and I find it striking like, these guys are just mean, right? But this is how we act, right? We are these individuals that do this. We are prone to doing this, setting ourselves against even the worst. Verse 4, and they said to him, teacher... This woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Oh, Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Verse 6. And they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted, he persisted in asking him. He straightened up. And said to them, this is what he says, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. What is he doing? He's calling them to be reflective. He is just told that you teach that adultery is when you wake up in the morning next to someone that's not your wife. But if you knew the law, he says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have slept with her in your heart, guilty of adultery. The gospel is is reflective. It forces you to deal with yourself. What is this you have done, Jacob thinks, and he declares. He knows what it is to be dealt wrong, and yet is unable to see his own wrong. Verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without the sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the elder ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. A person 
who was a sinner, experienced the grace of God, and is changed forevermore. Like Jacob is confronted with his own sin, the sins of others, and he doesn't change. He just picks up where his parents left off. I'll pick my favorites. You love Rachel or Leah, and the story will progressively get worse as we continue. The question that I have for you and I as we come now before the table, we recognize the gospel is highly reflective. I would ask you to join with me in asking yourself reflectively, where are we deceiving ourselves? Putting off and dealing or trivializing our own sins, which we recognize in others, and negating them in ourselves. As we reflect together, we join in hope, right? That God is gracious towards us and that we might be a people that continue walking this way, being transformed into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is an interesting story. In fact, it's an amazing story in that you are so gracious to Laban and Jacob and to Leah and Rachel. The hope that I find in even Leah's story, the one who is now to become unloved, the way that you loved her. And the way that you continued to show grace to Jacob and Rachel. You love all of us. Desire to have a relationship with us, and we know this because of Jesus Christ. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is your love. And Lord, we, in light of acknowledging and knowing your grace, Lord, let us not trivialize our own sin. Lord, I pray that you allow us to be aware of them, to confess them, and to repent. And joining Christ walking in true righteousness. And so, Lord, as we wait to take the table together, the bread and the cup, Lord, I pray that um, you allow us to be reminded of that grace and enjoy the hope set before us, knowing that the grace you've given us is so astoundingly wonderful. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll take the ushers.